Thank you for tuning in to our podcast, History's Top 3, brought to you by the History Department of the United States Naval Academy, located in Annapolis, Maryland. In this show, we will discuss and debate some of the key turning points, trends, and major figures of world history. Our goal is to explore the varied land and seascapes of the past in hopes of shedding some light on the way the present world came to be. In our studio today, we have three co-hosts, Lawrence Nelson, Ross Phillips, and I'm Ben Brewster. All three of us are PhD candidates in history at Texas A&M University. In this season of Top 3, each of us will present our top choice for today's theme. The top three most influential U.S. Marine Corps campaigns you've never heard of. Fantastic. We will then discuss how we made our choices and why we believe they deserve a place in the top three. We invite you to share your thoughts and engage in the discussion. Lawrence, would you like to start us off? Uh, my name is Lawrence Nelson. I currently work at the Center of Military History uh, for the U.S. Army. I'm a civilian historian over there. I hope you won't hold that against me. Um, whoop and giggum to start us off. Uh, it's been a rough season, but there's always uh, hope for the future. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, my, my topic specifically uh, about the U.S. occupation and intervention uh, in Nicaragua that occurred from uh, about 1926-27 to 1933. Uh, the U.S. Marine Corps began arriving in Nicaragua in mid-1926 and stayed until 1933 on an assignment that the Coolidge administration did not seek. Imperial inertia, including commonly held beliefs about security and democracy, gave the Coolidge administration a sense that they could not avoid embarking on a stability operation in Nicaragua at that time. Senior naval officers in, on the ground in Nicaragua understood their government's trepidation and feared negative publicity that came with a controversial campaign in a region that had grown increasingly hostile to U.S. intervention. In this fraught political environment, General Logan Phelan, the head of the U.S. Marine Corps expedition to Nicaragua, planned a short intervention of nearly 2,000 Marines to last only three months. Next, all the Marines except one regiment and those serving with the Guardia Nacional would withdraw. Those Marines left behind would have a, the mandate to maintain stability and supervise free elections in the country in cooperation with the Guardia Nacional until this new force could take on the task themselves. Unfortunately for the Americans, a guerrilla leader galvanized an effective resistance in the northern mountains of Nueva Segovia. Augusto Sandino set up a Caldeo-led insurgency that drew its strength from the local population and successfully avoided Marine Corps operations in the region. Sandino's attacks on Americans and their allies began just as General Feland had begun preparing for the rapid withdrawal of the majority of the Marines. As violence in northern Nicaragua increased during the summer of 1927, the intervention forces launched a single column into the mountains. Sandino fell back while launching spoiling attacks at the Marines. After a month in the hills, the Marine column ended offensive patrolling and set up several small garrisons in the region. By August 1927, General Phelan continued to withdraw his Marines, hoping that Sandino's forces would disintegrate in the hostile rainy season because he feared eliminating the guerrilla chieftain would produce a propaganda backlash. Sandino took advantage of the lack of military competition in Nueva Segovia to entrench his movement and continue to launch attacks at his enemies, despite periodic escalations of offensives uh, from time to time by the Marines over the next six years. Con Sandino continued to elude them. 
Several circumstantial factors aided Sandino's survival, but the early operational approach articulated by senior, senior naval leaders gave Sandino his most critical advantage. They gave him time and space to organize an effective organization. Sandino used terror, political allegiances, and Caldeo socioeconomic relations to establish strong roots for his resistance movement. Once established, the Marines and their allies could not disentangle the people of the region from the insurgents. Thanks for that, Lawrence. Uh, Ross, over to you. Curious to hear what your pick was. Howdy, everybody. Uh, I'm Ross Phillips, uh, PhD candidate at Texas A&M. Uh, I'm currently the Lieutenant Colonel Lily H. Gridley uh, Doctoral Fellow at the Marine Corps History Division Archives, also with the Marine Corps Heritage Foundation. Um, today, I'm going to just talk to you about uh, two months in 1969 for my pick for the top three. On the 22nd of January 1969, the men of the 9th Marine Regiment began Operation Dewey Canyon. The action was the culmination of Major General Raymond G. Davis's high-mobility approach. This tactical approach was essentially the U.S. Army's air mobile concept transplanted to the Marine Corps. Davis sought to utilize a combination of helicopters, firepower, and reconnaissance patrols to accumulate intelligence. He also wanted his units to adopt an offensive posture, limiting the number of troops left behind at fire support bases, and he ended the practice of loaning out companies and battalions to other units in order to restore unit integrity and enhance unit cohesion. Taking over the 3rd Marine Division in May 1968, Davis had implemented his changes and utilized his tactical approach the rest of the year. Going into 1969, he wanted to strike a significant blow to the North Vietnamese base area near the Laotian border in the Dakrong Valley. Thus, the plans for Dewey Canyon were set in motion. The action was planned for four phases, but executed in three. Phase one consisted of the initial Helleborn assault into the area where the regiment's fire support bases would be established. The second phase required the clearing of the area around the fire bases in order to ensure their security before the main attack. For the third and final phase, all three battalions of the 9th Marines aligned upon a single axis for a sweep down the valley toward the Laotian border. For the next two months, the Marines fought hard in the face of fierce North Vietnamese resistance and bad weather. Notably during the final phase, the Marines discovered several major weapons and supply caches, a field hospital, and captured multiple 122-millimeter Soviet field guns, one of which is displayed in the National Museum of the Marine Corps at Quantico today. The Marines also slipped inside Laos and raided the Ho Chi Minh Trail, including a harrowing nighttime ambush on a communist truck convoy. This period inside Laos proved to be one of the most productive periods of the operation. After significant difficulty mustering enough helicopter assets and decent weather to extract the Marines from the field, the operation ended on 18 March. Dewey Canyon was lauded for its body count and the amount of enemy equipment and supplies captured and destroyed. The action is regarded by some as the most definitively successful Marine Corps operation of the Vietnam War, and one of the most innovative. Upon close examination of the operation, however, its success and innovative nature can be called into question. Dewey Canyon, though it amassed many enemy dead and equipment captured, did nothing to prevent North Vietnamese infiltration into I-Corps. It amounted to an offensive-defensive raiding strategy that failed to deny the North Vietnamese their coveted base areas in the western reaches of I-Corps and utilized a highly derivative tactical approach that essentially replicated U.S. Army air mobile search and destroy missions without the helicopter resources and logistic capabilities to fully sustain these types of operations. 
That's awesome. Uh, so I'm Ben Brewster. Uh, I'm a major in the Marine Corps, an infantry officer, and also a PhD candidate in military history at Texas A&M. And uh, what I'm going to be talking about today is the U.S. decision to invade Panama in 1989, uh, and particularly the Marine Corps' relegation uh, to really just a token force in that operation. The U.S. invasion of Panama in 1989 was both rapid and decisive. What began in 1988 as a tiff between American and Panamanian governments ended in a massive military invasion to depose Panama's self-proclaimed dictator, Manuel Noriega, during Christmas week in 1989. For nearly 100 years, Panama had served as a pseudo-colony and outpost for American influence in Latin America. The United States' strategic interest in the region was tied to both the security of the Panama Canal and countering communist activity in the Western Hemisphere throughout the Cold War. As the 1980s thawed the struggle against global Marxism, the drug war burst into flames in South America. America's domestic concern with South American drugs brought extra scrutiny to Panama's geographic significance. In the late 1980s, a Reagan administration indicted Noriega, then Panama's intelligence chief, on drug trafficking charges, and the State Department cut a deal that would allow him to flee the country for Europe without charges following him. Noriega, however, doubled down, declaring in 1989 presidential elections invalid and installed himself as the Isthmus's dictator, all while railing against the gringos from the north. Newly elected George Herbert Walker Bush and his administration, which included Dick Cheney and Colin Powell, saw Noriega as a real threat, both to the canal in Panama and Bush's political prestige in the states. Both sides set the stage to act rapidly. During Christmas week in 1989, Noriega proclaimed himself the maximum leader of Panama for life, which set in motion a chain of events that changed his life and the fate of his nation forever. Within a week, President Bush ordered a full-scale military invasion of some 26,000 U.S. troops to topple the several thousand strong Panamanian defense forces, and U.S. troops then occupied the canal and surrounding cities. The U.S. achieved this decisive takeover in less than 24 hours, which led Bush to comment, we've kicked the Vietnam syndrome. Less than a year later, his comment seemed validated by the second overwhelming American success against Iraqi forces halfway around the world. In hindsight, it appears that Panama proved to be the first act of the U.S. in the post-Cold War world, acting as an unconstrained unipolar power. The occupation and nation-building that followed were an early example of America's future role as a peacekeeper in the 1990s and in its global war on terrorism in the 2000s. As a notable article from 2004 quipped, the road to Baghdad started in Panama. However, the irony of this forgotten operation is that it took place on an isthmus, ideal terrain for an amphibious assault, the bread and butter of the United States Marine Corps. But of the 26,000 U.S. troops involved, only several hundred were Marines. This small force of one rifle company, a light armored reconnaissance company, and a fleet anti-terrorism security platoon was relegated by the Army Command and really assigned an operational area that was insignificant to the overall operation. Their contribution, as well as the invasion in general, was soon forgotten in light of the rest of the decade. So, 
Um, we got three questions teed up, and uh, as we we've gotten these intros out there. First off, it's awesome to be here in the room with the two of you. We got to know each other as grad students. Uh, I mentioned I was a Marine. I don't think I mentioned that I'm now uh, teaching history here at the Naval Academy. That is my penance uh, for taking the Marine Corps up on the opportunity to pursue uh, a PhD, and that's where I met the two of you. So it's good to be back in the same room, and I'm super glad you guys are contributing to just the study of military history, both with the Army and the Marine Corps. Uh, so, uh, the three questions I think we're going to tackle today, and we'll just go round robin and we'll have a, a discussion and see how it works. Uh, how do the Marines structure uh, their campaign or operation? Uh, the second question is, how did it work or not work at the tactical level? And then the last one will be, why, uh, why was this campaign or operation influential but soon forgotten? So, those are three things we're going to tackle. Uh, so first up, how did the Marines structure their campaign or operation? Anyone care to jump in first? I have a lot of thoughts on this one. It's, uh, for me, that's, it's a really essential part of the research I'm doing right now on Nicaragua is how these campaigns are, how the campaign was structured from the beginning and how it led to a lack of overall success. Um, the main reason why they're structured the way they are uh, are sort of political constraints and political concerns by senior Marine Corps and Naval leaders. Um, so what they do is they try to do a quick in and out, uh, which had worked previously in 1912 uh, in Nicaragua. So it's an understandable error based, based on that. The problem is they came up with a different problem set. So as I mentioned in my introduction, um, General Feland and uh, Real, Rear Admiral Sellers, who was the admiral in charge of the Special Service Squadron, technically in charge uh, of overall command of the operations going on in Nicaragua at the time, they agreed that what they wanted to do was uh, a quick stabilizing mission that began with the establishment of neutral zones during a civil war that was taking place in Nicaragua between two forces. The two forces were are self-described as either the liberals or the conservatives. Real quick, it has nothing to do with the political dynamics that we're currently dealing with in the United States. Uh, that's a good disclaimer, one that we often throw out <laughs> in the classroom here. So, uh, yeah, I appreciate it. Uh, yeah, politics, not, not at all similar. Uh, so so just, just keep that in mind. Uh, essentially, these are semi-oligarchical political groups uh, defending their right to control uh, the country. Um, so the, the ones on the outs were the liberals. They had started a revolution against... Uh, a coup d'etat, which had taken place uh, by a conservative uh, chieftain, and they were trying to oust him. Uh, and they were the liberals were getting support from Mexico, so the United States was very concerned about this, uh, as Mexico had somewhat uh, gotten involved in revolutionary politics, and they were concerned with what they called the expansion of Bolshevism. So uh, they they felt they had to get involved. Yet there had been a turn and American policy thinking at the time. Uh, from the uh, turn of the century to this point, there had been a common practice in the United States to get involved in Latin American countries uh, through intervention to stabilize those countries to protect the security of the United States and specifically the Panama Canal. Uh, that was starting to go out of vogue already in the United States State Department. Uh, but the concern with the security of the Panama Canal had not gone out of vogue yet. And Nicaragua, as you may know from basic geography, is pretty darn close to that Panama Canal. So they, they felt they had to get involved uh, in Nicaragua, despite the fact that many folks in the State Department and uh, President Coolidge himself did not necessarily want to 
prosecute this campaign. The Marine Corps itself had come under fire for the way it had operated in Haiti and the Dominican Republic. And they'd also seen negative press from involvement in the Philippines as well. I don't want to get into exactly what happened, but uh, there, there was a lot of press in the United States, opposition press, that had specifically accused the Marines of uh, atrocities and other things, some of which could be verified, other things just simply weren't verifiable. Um, but it had put a, a bit of a pall over the reputation of the Marine Corps, and they had seen this as a negative thing. Yet the Marine Corps also felt obliged as a military institution to follow orders, but also to take uh, the opportunity to prove its worth to the nation very seriously. So they, they of course, willingly and, and very willingly got involved, but with a very firm knowledge of the political risks they were taking on. And so, as I said before, they designed a campaign that was quick in and out. They would create neutral zones. They would get in between the two forces. They um, helped establish a peace treaty between the two and then sponsored uh, the use of free and fair elections in the next year. But then they wanted to quickly remove as many Marines as possible because, as General Phelan put it, he, he was afraid that the more exposure to Marines the people of Nicaragua had, the less they would like Americans. He was afraid of what the Marines would do. So he started to remove the Marines during the summer of 1927. Unfortunately, that's exactly when Augusto Cesar Sandino established his guerrilla force and began attacking American and allied forces in the region. Despite this fact, the rise of a new threat, the Americans continued to withdraw and left only a skeleton force in Nicaragua by August and September of 1927. Sandino only grew in strength. And then when the Americans finally decided to respond as the danger increased through the rest of 1927 and became increasingly bad in 1928, they responded with an increased force, but still decided not to try and finish off Sandino, as in eliminate him, but they wanted to remove him or drive him from the area. And so they did successfully, eventually, after about a year, get Sandino to leave the country and scale back his guerrilla forces, although a small force continued to operate. But the problem was they once again declared victory Sandino returned after a year from a trip to Mexico and again initiated his guerrilla forces. And at that point, the United States, as the Great Depression had begun, was unwilling to invest much more in Nicaragua. And the Guardia Nacional, the constabulary established by the United States as the local military trained by Marines, was left to fend for itself. And even as the Marines withdrew, violence continued. So it ended up being an inconclusive campaign in that sense. Wow. Thanks for that, Lawrence. That's, that's intriguing. And then also my mind just as a Marine is spinning with all the names that got kind of cut their teeth in combat experience there who then would go on to, to make names for themselves in World War II. But I, I don't want to ask you that question because I think we'll end up talking even more question about it. Question three. Yeah. Ross, you want to jump in uh, sure. at this point? So really to understand Operation Dewey Canyon, you have to understand uh, – the high mobility approach, that concept that I mentioned in, in my introduction. And so uh, it, it starts with uh, Major General Raymond G. Davis and his experiences as a, as a young officer and then also his experiences in Vietnam prior to taking over the 3rd Marine Division. And so um, as a young officer in the Marine Corps, he, he um, 
his basic school instructor is Chesty Puller. He's very uh, enamored with him, and he he takes to heart a lot of his messages. What uh, just to cut you off, I'm smiling at Lawrence right now. What a legacy, and what a handoff from Nicaragua to this this operation. That's so cool. I had no idea. Yeah, and so that's his basic school instructor, and he's really um, he's really taken with with Puller's concept of of uh, basically how to defeat the enemy, especially in a counterinsurgency, and it's through offensive action. Uh, you don't. You do not sit back in a defensive posture and protect the people. You go out into the field. You pursue the enemy constantly, and you eliminate him. And that is very impression. Uh, it's reached. It's very impressionable on Davis as a young young lieutenant uh, uh, in the late 30s, right before World War II. Um, in addition, Davis grows up reading a lot of literature about the U.S. Civil War, and he's very impressed with Stonewall Jackson's Valley campaigns in the Civil War, and he's really um, impressed by his ability to ride to the sound of the enemy's guns, his mobility. He, he thinks that there's, there's something very intriguing, something very valuable in that mobility that he demonstrates in his uh, valley campaigns, uh, especially early in the Civil War. And then third and perhaps the most influential element of it is his time with the 1st Air Cavalry Division uh, in 1968. So he is the Deputy Commanding General of Provisional Corps which is a U.S. Army-led command in Vietnam. And he spends a lot of time uh, talking with uh, the officers and men of the 1st Air Cav about air mobility and how they structure their operations and how they utilize a combination of helicopters and artillery and close air support and reconnaissance patrols to constantly pursue the enemy and try to leave them with no place for sanctuary. And this gives him, kind of, this all comes together to give him the idea behind high mobility and that he's going to take what is essentially the air mobile concept and he's going to apply it to the Marines in Vietnam, uh, who to this point he kind of views from 1965 to 1968, the 3rd Marine Division, as having been relatively static, having being relegated to the position uh, in northern South Vietnam along the demilitarized zone in these static fixed positions in places like Contien, Quezon, places that will be very familiar to uh, the Marines uh, and, and the, their Vietnam experience. And so he wants to pull those Marines out of that, and he wants to be aggressive and attack the enemy where they're at. And so, therefore, you get Dewey Canyon, which is structured in three phases, uh, there's the helicopter insertion. There is the the phase two, which is basically the insurance that that artillery uh, fan will be there, that that artillery uh, coverage will be there throughout the operation so it can respond to whatever is out there. Uh, they admittedly have not, not very great intelligence uh, when they go into the Dakrong Valley. They know that there's a threat there, but they don't actually really know what size threat that is. And that's going to be the case a lot of times with these operations. Uh, and then with the third phase, it's basically a traditional push. It's a sweep uh, down the valley. So it is very much kind of what, what people would describe as a search and destroy mission. Uh, and so that's really out of high mobility in that concept of wanting to be aggressive and pursue the enemy. You get the... Operation Dewey Canyon, which is often viewed as kind of the culmination, kind of the ideal operation of, uh, it epitomizes high mobility. 
Uh, and so, but there are also there are problems that will come with that. It's interesting as we transition now back to uh, Western Hemisphere, Panama, um, when we talk about why the, particularly the Marine Corps, sets up uh, the way it's involved in Panama, it has very little to do with the Marine Corps' choice in the way that they structure uh, their participation. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, Panama is this, uh, comes to be seen very quickly afterwards as this rapid, decisive operation. In 24 hours, uh, you have just an overwhelming force descend from the United States in terms of 82nd Airborne. Uh, and the 7th Infantry Division uh, mechanized, as well as some people have jokingly said um, you know, the invasion of Panama because the amount of forces that were already in the isthmus, it was basically the equivalent of uh, the Marine Corps attacking uh, Jacksonville, North Carolina, um, or, uh, or Fort Bragg uh, rolling out the gates and attacking Fayetteville. And that was kind of the thought, is there are already so many troops there, uh, and about half the force is already in Panama. It's just a matter of how they're going to militarily solve this problem to remove Noriega. So what ends up happening is there had already been a coup a month or two prior to uh, the invasion. And the coup was led by Panamanian officers who wanted to get rid of Noriega. They saw him as a threat. But the problem was, uh, if you're going to strike and take the leader out. Uh, what's that saying? You know, if you're gonna if you're gonna aim for the king, don't miss. Well, the the Panamanian officer who led the coup didn't strike, uh, and he basically gets cornered in the Comandancia, the Panamanian headquarters, by Noriega. Uh, his relief forces, Noriega's relief forces, fly into the city um, and then come to his rescue. And Noriega makes sure that he, he crushes this coup. So the original thought in the development of Operation Just Cause is uh, when the, the Pentagon is looking at this, and particularly U.S. Southcom is looking at it, and Southcom at the time wasn't in, um, wasn't in Florida. It's located in, in Panama City at the time. They say we need to have a overwhelmingly rapid operation that strikes multiple points at once. And they end up they end up developing a plan that hits 27 targets simultaneously in one period of darkness because the thought was you don't just want to take out Noriega. You want to take out all of his subordinate leadership. You can't have another dictator. And you basically want to incapacitate uh, the, the very prim primitively armed Panamanian defense forces, but you don't want to have an insurgency that goes to the mountains. They didn't want to end up in a circumstance um, with, with prolonged guerrilla warfare. Obviously, the echoes of Vietnam are still there, uh, but also fresh in the, uh, the Joint Chiefs' mind is not just the embarrassment of Vietnam, but the fact that they barely walked out of a very simple operation in Grenada. Uh, it barely walked out with their prides intact. And of course, Congress gets involved after Grenada. We have Goldwater Nichols. Um, so what ends up happening is Panama is really this first test in this opportunity post-Goldwater Nichols. It also is a first test and opportunity of the, the brand new Bush administration um, in two ways. Uh, one, uh, Berlin Wall has come down about a month prior to this operation. Uh, in between the Berlin Wall coming down and the invasion, Bush has the opportunity to meet uh, at Malta, 
with the uh, Russian leadership. And when you look at the transcripts, it's fascinating because Bush actually brings up the issue of Noriega in Panama three different times during these very high-level diplomatic talks where they're trying to outline what the future of, of U.S. and Russian relations might look like. Uh, and each time, he basically gets a reassurance from the, the Russian delegation that says, you know, the only real communist you have in your hemisphere, uh, they're in Cuba. As long as you leave Cuba alone, we don't really care what you do in your hemisphere. And Bush kind of, Bush and Scowcroft in their memoir, they kind of say that was an indication of them that they could proceed. Uh, and that's one of the assertions that this is a moment, really, the first action of the U.S. internationally in a post-Cold War era. Uh, and so Bush green lights. After that, he green lights uh, Southcom and uh, the Pentagon to say, we're going to use, we're going to go with the overwhelming military force option. Well, now, how are you going to solve that problem? Now, that, this plan has been in the works for a while. It's an army command um, in, uh, in Southcom. So they're obviously seen it through an army lens, and the vast majority of forces stationed in Panama are army forces. But it's really interesting because Commandant of the Marine Corps, uh, Al Gray at the time, who's just led the Marine Corps, he's in the process of leading the Marine Corps through what we now call the Maneuver Warfare Revolution. Uh, Al Gray, he is chomping at the bit because he knows something's brewing, and he keeps asking Colin Powell. He says, hey, chairman, you know, we can, we can send a Marine Expeditionary Unit down from Lejeune. We can send another one down from Pendleton. It's an isthmus. We can, we can do a pincer move on Panama and come in completely by surprise. Uh, he tries three or four times and gets just rebuffed by Powell every single time. So what it ultimately ends up being is it, this is an army proof of concept for their globally deployable ready brigades that they have pioneered through the Reagan era buildup to be able to fly the 82nd Airborne out, to be able to fly a, um, a light infantry division with these mechanized assets out of, uh, out of California. And so that plan is underway. It is ruthlessly planned by all of the, the SAMS graduates out of Fort Leavenworth, and there's no room for the Marine Corps. And General Gray basically elbows his way in and is communicating with Panama. He's communicating uh, with D.C. and he said the Marines need a role in this somehow. Uh, what they end up doing is that there have been Marines in Panama since 1988 guarding what is, what's called the Arahan tank farm. Uh, now, not tanks as in battle tanks, but uh, it's on the... Uh, western side of the canal, they're the strategic fuel reserves that are there in Panama. So there's these giant fuel drums all out in this rugged terrain, uh, really in a really undulating terrain, jungle-type area. But it's something that has to be physically patrolled and occupied to prevent there from being sabotaged. So the Marines have been there since 1988, uh, kind of securing it, but they're also using it as a rotational force for jungle training and some other things. The Army is predominantly concerned with securing uh, the mouths of the canal uh, on the, the north and south sides of the canal. And what ends up happening is you have this large Army task force, uh, and it's one of the first times they ever use a, a standing joint task force headquarters. This Army force says, uh, why don't we just let the Marines play where they've already been securing, and then we'll just let them attack 
out from the Arahant tank farm into the surrounding villages, really just to secure them. They don't anticipate there's going to be any significant Panamanian resistance. Uh, but the irony in all this is when you have the Commandant of the Marine Corps in D.C. chomping at the bit to try to get Marines in the fight, uh, you have a small Marine presence and the ideal geographic terrain, really other than an island. I mean, an isthmus is as close as you're going to get to, to the need for an amphibious invasion. Uh, the Army says, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, they've got both the combatant commander and the chairman both on their side. Uh, and what you have is a task force of Marines, um, just a few hundred in number, who really pursue limited objectives uh, in the Arahan tank farm and then attacking out to the west. So this has been a blast. Thanks for having this conversation. Uh, thanks to our sound engineer, uh, Terrence Viernes, who has dutifully sat here and listened to us have this conversation. Poor guy. Uh, yeah, we, <laughs> we wouldn't be able to do it without your expertise uh, and your genuine cheerfulness in all things. So thanks for that. As always, there's plenty more to debate on this subject, but we'll save that for a round of Drinks Between Friends. From all of us here at the United States Naval Academy, particularly the History Department, thank you for tuning in. This has been a production of the History Department at the U.S. Naval Academy, located in Annapolis, Maryland. If you enjoy our programs, please let us know as we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at USNA History, and our email is historyproductions-group at usna.edu. For more information about the History Department at the Naval Academy, please visit usna.edu history.